0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. It's me Lentesta and this is our show for the week of Thursday, December 14th, 2020. On the show today, news and listener questions and in our main segment, Jim talks about the history of Disneyland's Christmas tree. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that when you have a day off, it's the night before the day off that's the real day off. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Excuse me, I have to break out the whiteboard. i got to parse that. <laughs> the, the diagram here. There's two arrows. <laughs> the friend of my friend is my
0: enemy who beat up
1: my day off. <laughs> the friend of my
0: friend is the enemy with the day off. There we go. Anyway, no, no, Jim. Our producer, Aaron, tells me that today mm-hmm. is our 300th Episode of the Disney Dish. Congratulations! Wow, and
1: out of those three hundred, how many of them are actually entertaining, Len?
0: That's not really the metric that we're going for here, Jim. It's like it's like saying how many episodes of CPO Sharky were entertaining. Ah, wow, well,
1: <laughs> the Don Rickles fans out there—they're that- up in arms again. Okay,
0: great. Uh, speaking of which, we uh, uh, Laurel and I started rewatching Friends from the beginning. Oh, just to see how, how it holds up. When does the Rachel actually arrive? The hairstyle that I'm still in season one.
1: So it wasn't a season one thing. It just,
0: okay. I, you know, I'll go back and look. The, uh, the funny thing is, is we, we were trying to figure out when stunt casting began mm-hmm. in oh. Friends. Like, you know, when did Brad Pitt first show up? There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're working our way through that. Anyway. Oh,
1: okay, we'll get the game card going. Because, again, you know when the Rachel <laughs> emerges, and and likewise, you know, when all those friends turn out to be Tom Selleck.
0: <laughs> all right, cool. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at disneydish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Vicky the C, Nick H11, and Bill H, and longtime subscribers PJG, Rachel H, who might be in Alaska based mm-hmm. on what looks like a zip code. And Bruce L. Jim, these are the folks who scanned their grandmother's Christmas plates into the projection videos seen on the Hollywood Tower Hotel nightly during the holidays. And if you look closely, Bruce says you can see a giant blob of stuck-together hard candy that his Nana brought out every winter for 40 years. True story.
1: <laughs> Was that along with the relish plate? Which, again, <laughs> I miss. <laughs> I used to have old relatives that you'd go to there <laughs> as part of the holiday table.
0: There'd be that relish paper, the tiny pickles. Nobody does that anymore with seasonal toothpicks, plastic toothpicks, there right? We but go. they would wash the toothpicks, <laughs> at least my grandmother would, and reuse them next year. Like, oh, don't throw those away; those are decorations.
1: Children of the Depression. It was was hard to break them of that.
0: I once joked with my grandparents. Like, I went into their pantry, and they had enough paper towels to clean up after a nuclear accident. Like, like, am I going to see these roles of bounty in the mountains of Nevada later on? Is that, is that the, that the plan here? What are you, what are you doing here? Doris and Leonard. So, anyway.
1: Oh, so we God are named, him. we are named after our grandfather or.
0: Uh, yeah, actually it's, uh, yeah. I'm actually
1: named after both of my uncles, my uncle Dick and my uncle Jim. You know, again, wow. a lovely family connection. That that's in fact, We did the exact same thing with Alice. She's actually named after her two
0: aunts. That is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, this episode of the Disney Dish is brought to you by Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. <laughs> you really didn't know your family tree. All right. Let's do the uh, let's do the news, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast for a worry-free travel experience every time online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, a light week on news, but let me give two things to you. One, uh, I was in Epcot yesterday, Mm -hmm. two days ago, uh, and uh, Spice Road Table has now closed, and will reopen shortly with an updated temporary menu. Remember, all of the restaurants in the Morocco Pavilion are now being run by Disney, uh, and this is the only one that's currently open. Mm -hmm. Word on the street, though, maybe from some people talking around the Mm -hmm. Spice Road Table area, says that this entire restaurant will be reimagined by Disney. Jim, my guess is here, this is going to make it more attractive to people who want to see Harmonious when it debuts.
1: I remember we did lunch at Spice Road Table. and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a nice selection of finger food and a beautiful view. And I, I could never figure out why that particular restaurant wouldn't be successful given the view, the location.
0: I think it's underperformed. Given, given where it is on the water mm-hmm. relative to... The displays that we see on World Chickas Lagoon, Mm -hmm. it should be packed every single night. Absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. I wonder if it's going to, I mean, my sense is it'll still be Moroccan food. The current temporary menu has a lot of the uh, favorites of the old ones with the hummus fries and things like that. I mean, it's not going to become, you know, French food or Italian food or anything like that. But we wonder what they're going to do to reimagine it to get more people in to see Harmonious. Maybe Disney can buy Paramount and and then
1: they can do the the Road to Morocco restaurant.
0: Bob <laughs> Hope and Crosby. Speaking of Harmonious, have you seen the size of the barge that they floated up today on World Circus? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like the Death Star in the middle of the whole lake. Like what what is that?
1: There was a certain subset of managers within Disney who wanted to just have some sort of Christmas light display, something just in the middle during the holiday season and and doesn't have to be the full show. It just get it out there, do stuff. And when you, you look at it out of the water now, in fact, what's interesting is they've actually put signage around World Show because, again, people are walking around and are like, what is that? You know, it's like, <laughs> exactly. it fell out of the sky. Yeah. The aliens will be getting out of it shortly. But yeah, no, it is huge. And if things had gone a different way, you would be hearing Christmas music and watching bulbs and snowflakes and that sort of thing being projected onto those things.
0: Disney says that they're going to mask the size of the arches during the day by using them as water fountains. <laughs> and my first question is, Is how much water are they going to have to pump through oh. to hide that? You would be able to hear the sound of the pumps probably from five miles away.
1: That's sort of like calling Niagara Falls a water feature, right? I mean- <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be kind of interesting to see if it actually works as is, is a passive neutral water feature out there.
0: Uh, I'll be super impressed to see it. So I'm going oh, to gonna bop over there when we're done to uh, to take a look at it uh, okay. again. It's, it's just outstanding. So mm-hmm. The other thing um, I saw at Epcot, the Christmas decorations up are, are up at Living with the Land. So mm-hmm. they've done light bulbs, mm-hmm. uh, Christmas bulbs, and a bunch of uh, Christmas decorations all over the greenhouse mm-hmm. of Living with the Land. It looks fabulous as always. So, uh, so folks, if you're coming down, be sure to take a ride on living with the land
1: yeah i take a look think at that. Our, our buddy seth kaberski got in there early and got
0: some shots of it
1: who do you suppose actually does the decorating there
0: it's pretty straightforward stuff i, mm-hmm. I think most of it is off the shelf with a few yeah, yeah. Uh, a few exceptions so i you know it could just be you know the the regular cast members who are working at living with the land mm-hmm. i mean it's it's strings of lights hung up on you know hydroponic plant apparatus they uh, they did put uh, green holiday lights around the uh, sturgeon tanks in the in the aquaculture, <laughs> which which at night when you know when you when you go is is either it's either uh, very cheery or vaguely menacing, depending on the mood I you're w- in. As you
1: was about to say, that that's not a reassuring color, particularly with things that are swimming around in tubes. You
0: yeah, yeah, it's not like that. <laughs> All right, Jim, on to uh, listener questions. Our friend Dick writes in with a correction about our recent story of Disney characters visiting the resorts. He says, on a recent episode, you said that they've never had characters in hotels. But back in 1973, checking into the Polynesian, we had to deal with Captain Hook and Mr. Smee hustling around with the front desk, ending with Captain Hook kidnapping my wife. What a great experience it was. And I, there's no hint of sarcasm in that, by the way. So Dick actually sent in the photo, Jim. You see it there. I the, Wow. the Polynesian with bamboo walls. Look at that. And, and you'll
1: notice Mr. Smee is making off with the wife's purse at this point.
0: I, mean, I thought he was like being a porter and just taking the luggage to the room. <laughs> the the other thing they see is that uh, Captain Hook doesn't have a glove on his other hand. So it's just a human hand with the Captain Hook outfit. Also, he's... a uh, He's more pink than red in this one, but that could be the old Polaroid. That could be. Dick that That could be. But fabulous photo. Look at that bamboo wall in the back. That is just beautiful. <sighs> wow. Uh, lots of folks sent in surveys this week. So apparently the folks at Disney Research are very, very active. Our uh, pal Jennifer writes in with an interesting survey in which Disney is testing the appeal of different discount offers in the middle of the survey itself. Mm-hmm. Like, Would you like this or would you like this? Mm-hmm. So here's the uh, here's the survey. If there were no state restrictions, because you know, Jim, sometimes Disney offers Mm -hmm. sales to people who live in different states. If there were no state restrictions, which offer do you think you would have chosen here? And Disney gave Jennifer two options. Save up to $500 on a four-night, four-day Walt Disney World travel package or uh, save up to 30% on rooms at certain Disney resorts for people of these states. So the interesting thing here that Disney's testing Mm. is... Do you respond more to the save up to $500 or save up to 30%? Now, typically what happens when we see these offers, mm-hmm. it's Disney, Disney knows the end price point that they want to hit. So both offers will end up costing you almost exactly the same amount of money. What Disney is testing here is which text you respond to. So that's super interesting because it's in the middle of a survey. And Disney normally does this by A-B testing Mm -hmm. the two offers to two completely different groups of people. But my sense here is that so few people are actually staying at Disney hotels, and we'll talk about this in a second, Mm -hmm. that they actually don't have enough data to do A-B testing. So they're asking it in the middle of the survey. Wow. The other interesting thing is Jennifer booked a trip. Mm -hmm. And the follow-up question was, if the discounted package offer was not available, would you have still booked a trip to the Walt Disney World Resort for sometime in 2020? And Jennifer answered, yes. So then you got a bunch of follow-up questions and we've never seen this one before. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to the time when you first began to consider making this trip, through the time that you made the booking of the trip, please indicate the order in which each of the following things occurred. And the three things are, I booked the discounted offer. I started looking for information on the internet. I made a definite decision to visit the Walt Disney world resort. So in Jennifer's case, she started looking for the information. She made a definite decision to visit and then she booked a discounted offer. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So they're trying to figure out the steps that people are taking Mm -hmm. to do it. So do you start looking for information or do you make a definite decision first? That's, that's interesting.
1: What do you think the, the thinking here is, is, is this, where do we target our ads going forward? Because the notion of started looking for information on the internet.
0: So I think the thing that they're looking for there is how many people are going to go no matter what. Mm-hmm. So the, the step that is titled, I've made a definite decision to visit the Walt Disney Resort. Mm-hmm. If you've already made that decision, you're probably not as price sensitive mm-hmm. as someone who started looking for information first. Mm-hmm. right? So if you're going, you're going. Yep. So I think that's what they're looking for um, there. And the reason for that is, too, the follow-up question mm-hmm. that Jennifer sent in said, if no other discount was available for Walt Disney World, do you, would you still have booked a trip for sometime in 2020? Yes, I would have still booked a trip, or no, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. So Jennifer actually answered no on that one, which is kind of interesting, too. And here's the thing I don't understand about these, these kinds of questions. So Bob Chapik has said that annual pass holders aren't as profitable as guests who stay at a Disney resort, right? He said that on not the investor call from yesterday, but the last, I think, quarterly earnings call, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at resort occupancy for Walt Disney World for November and December, some of the hotels are pretty low. Mm -hmm. Grand Floridian between November and December is going to come out at around 40% occupancy. Coronado Springs is going to come out around 40% occupancy. Contemporary Yacht Club, around 60% occupancy, right? And the DVC resorts are doing better But that's not new revenue, right? That's revenue that Disney's already booked. So like Boardwalk Villas and Bay Lake Tower are around 90%, but those people already paid for their points, right? Mm -hmm. But even then, like Saratoga is around 70% availability or uh, occupancy, but it's still got some rooms available. So so my question is this, why not offer discounts on those hotel rooms? Like there's tons of park reservations right now Mm -hmm. that are being allocated to annual pass holders. Wouldn't it be more profitable for Disney to just throw in some targeted hotel discounts to get people from out of state into, like, the Grand Floridian?
1: Did you listen to any of the follow-up questions from the actual investors? Because they they were asking about how are the parks doing now? Are they, are they operating at a loss? That sort of thing. And I was figuring, with you mentioning, I think, a show or two ago about the parks moving from 20% capacity to 35% capacity—
0: yeah, 25 to 35, yeah.
1: Wouldn't that be reflected in the you know, the hotel occupancy? Because you that's a startling number for the flow in, in Coronado Springs.
0: Well, that's the thing. Um, so if you notice, what's happened over the last few weeks is all of the annual pass park reservations mm-hmm. get allocated to like Hollywood Studios, for example, on weekends and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then miraculously, more reservations for annual pass holders appear a few days later. And what Disney's doing is, is they're, they're moving them from the other two buckets, right? From the people with date-specific tickets mm-hmm. and from people who are staying at the hotels over. And the reason for that is there aren't that many people in those two groups who are coming to Walt Disney World. Oh. But why not make them better offers? Mm-hmm. I don't get it. We're in underwear gnome country at this point, Len.
1: <laughs> are, are you familiar with the South Park episode about the underwear gnomes? No, no, no. Basically, the episode is about how underwear is being stolen, and eventually they find the gnomes that are doing it, and they actually have a whiteboard in the cave that's filled with all of the the underwear. And on the whiteboard, it has underwear plus question mark equals huge profit.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a part of this
1: equation we're not getting. There, there's,
0: there's something... Must be. Yeah. There's something... And, and you try and figure out the strategy from the uh, from the survey questions, mm-hmm. but I'd, I'd love to know. Anyway, yeah. you know, I, I do expect uh, discounts to come out. I know that on Priceline, mm-hmm. we've seen discounts for all star movies start popping up, but they're not they're not great. I don't think they're better than what you can get on the Disney website right now. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim. A number of listeners, including Taylor and Lucy, sent in a survey they got from Disney about their upcoming trips in 2021. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing here is that Disney's asking them what particular aspects. Of the Disney experience influence them to being either fully committed or not committed to their trip. So here are the, here's the question: Which of these Walt Disney World protocols mm-hmm. would you say have the largest influence on your being fully committed to your upcoming Walt Disney World resort reservation? So in terms of experiences, extra Magic Hours temporarily suspended, Disney Fast Pass temporarily suspended, limited character dining experiences, uh, no nighttime spectaculars, no character meet and greets, or no parades. Like. As that made you fully committed to your current Walt Disney World uh, reservation. And, and to their credit, neither uh, Taylor nor Lucy answered that those things made them feel better about their trips. There's a second category that says safety and health protocols, such as uh, guests being temperature screened, employees being required to wear masks, uh, limiting the number of people in the parks. I think uh, employees temperature screened and so on. So mm-hmm. you know those things obviously would make people more committed to their trip. Mm-hmm. The uh, the third group though was digital experiences, including mobile order for food, online check-in, Disney park pass, and digital sign-up for virtual queues. And I'm curious here to see how many people say that Disney park passes, like being, those being mandatory to get into a park, mm-hmm. make them fully committed to their upcoming Walt Disney World trip. So the way that Disney put that particular
1: down. Yeah. Yeah,
0: they put that choice mm-hmm. in with three other choices that you would definitely say yes. This has enhanced my. Mm-hmm. So you know, like mobile ordering I think is is generally a net positive. only check it, I think is a net positive. Mm-hmm. Digital center for virtual queues, obviously I think that's a net positive as well. Mm-hmm. But to put this other thing that doesn't go with that, which I would consider a negative, you know, the the requirement to make reservations, I wonder how many people would just inadvert- inadvertently check that.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just the cookie, cookie broccoli.
0: <laughs> exactly, cookie, <laughs> cookie broccoli fudge. Yeah, yeah. there we <laughs> so, go. Like- <laughs> The uh, the next question that they sent in was, uh, was this, please select the reasons why you're choosing to visit the Walt Disney World Resort in 2021. So during that time of year, uh, what are the factors? And so the ones that were checked were I'm anticipating it being less crowded and I'm anticipating being able to book my preferred Walt Disney World hotel. Mm -hmm. The other ones are that I'm anticipating that some experiences will resume. I'm anticipating that I'll be able to reserve my preferred dining experiences There are appealing Central Florida prices, promotions, or deals. I'm anticipating being able to attend a specially ticketed, limited-time, seasonal Walt Disney World event. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The other thing is is if you answer you're not very committed for your trip, Mm -hmm. as, as one of our listeners did, you get an additional question, and it's this. Which of these factors would you say has influence on your being not very committed to your current Walt Disney World reservation? Fear of getting ill while vacationing, New school learning environments, my household's job or work situation or personal schedule. Flying is my transportation of choice and I'm avoiding air travel. Mm -hmm. The pace of new coronavirus infections in the area where I live. And that's important because Disney can't control that. Pace of new coronavirus infections in Central Florida. Overnight accommodations are required in transit to Walt Disney World and I want to avoid hotel stays. Mm -hmm. There are quarantine requirements. There's an inability to receive accurate and quick COVID-19 testing. Within various vacation checkpoints, the availability of a vaccine by the date of my reservation or other. Hmm. And then Matt got a slightly different version of the same question. Which of these options would be most likely to cause you to cancel your reservation in 2021 if it wasn't available? Mm -hmm. So which of these things, if they weren't there, would you cancel your trip over? Number of people allowed in the parks is favorable. Requirement of advanced theme park reservations go away. So So hold on. Now that I'm reading this more closely, there's a lot of double negatives in here, right? Yeah. If it wasn't available. So if the requirement of advanced theme park reservations goes away, Mm -hmm. wasn't available. Oof! I could probably diagram this sentence, but boy, it would be hard. Yeah. Um, The amount of physical distancing measures were lessened. Mm -hmm. Character meet and greets were available. Fast pass was available. Longer operating hours were offered. And we haven't seen longer operating hours mentioned yet, have we? No, not yet. Uh nighttime spectaculars available, select character dining experiences available, extra magic hours available, guests wearing masks or face coverings uh is no longer required, or none of these would cause me to cancel if they weren't available? Hmm. That's an oddly worded question.
1: Yeah. Half the time a survey is written. Not necessarily because they're actually looking for information. They're looking for a specific answer to justify a decision. Right. They're testing something. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a lot of very strange language.
0: The fact that so many of our listeners got this survey Mm. at the same time and sent them in Mm. means they really want to know the answers to these questions relatively quickly.
1: Mm. It's been fascinating now to watch as the vaccine is started use in the UK and they're talking about when it will will start to get the green light here in the States and that sort of thing. But we've spent nine months at this point, Len, learning these behaviors. And it's just sort of like, how comfortable are we going to be stepping away from some of these? Like, for example, that one guest wearing cloth face coverings at all times Unless dining is no longer required.
0: Yeah. We're wearing masks through 2021. Yeah. That's just going to be a requirement. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, especially now. Like Mm -hmm. now when it's um, a little bit cool outside, Mm -hmm. absolutely no problem wearing a mask. Summer was a little rough, but but this is absolutely no problem. So the um, the other thing I wanted to mention here, Jim, is that Mm -hmm. these questions are similar to the survey that our friend Gabby sent in about her recent stay at Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of questions in that survey about value for money or how Gabby would rate her experience with the restaurants or with shopping with transportation and with other amenities. And so the the rumor right now is that neither part of Port Orleans is going to reopen until the fall of 2021. Hmm. And Caribbean beach occupancy looks like it's going to be around 75 to 80% for November and December. Hmm. So I was wondering if that survey that Gabby got was related to a pricing strategy for that resort because 75 to 80% for Caribbean Beach if people are satisfied with that that would be huge because it's it's generally the weakest mm-hmm. of Disney's moderate resorts like it's it's almost invariably every year the lowest rated of the moderate resorts so i wonder if they're if they're testing that for price sensitivity like if we can't raise prices at Caribbean Beach mm-hmm. without making people unhappy do we open up French Quarter instead and maybe close off parts of Kirby Beach? I don't know. It's an interesting question.
1: I wish somebody in the Disney underwear gnome department would reach out to us because we're missing part of this equation.
0: Yeah, yeah. If, you, if, you're, uh, if you're one of those gnomes, let us know. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the history of Disneyland's Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. Jim, I know we... Uh, we're supposed to open this story uh, with a reference to the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center, which I actually saw. I was
1: about to ask. It was that, in New that, York last week. Okay, yeah. and oh,
0: so there was only scaffolding around it. You couldn't actually see the tree itself. Mm-hmm. But I'm told it looks better now. It was they were bolting on the different branches.
1: Did you actually get to see when they they hauled it in from upstate New York? You know, when they were talking about it being the Charlie Brown Christmas tree.
0: No, I was in the middle of a quarantine, so I couldn't go out. But okay. the, um, the issue was mm-hmm. the day that they decided to put the tree up, like you know, take it, to take it off the flatbed truck and try and erect it using the crane, it was a super windy day. Uh, okay. And what ended up happening is they put like a, you know, a belt, like a harness mm-hmm. around the tree to try and lift it up. And then the wind caught the tree mm-hmm. and essentially slid it down. So the belt acted like a shaver. Just <laughs> and just took a bunch of branches off one side.
1: Nobody had that backstory. All they had was the image of the tree with the chunk that had been taken out of it because the belt slipped. And everyone was like, yep. you know, 2020 continues. Even the <laughs> Rockefeller Center tree can't catch a break. And then also that poor little owl. That was a good looking owl, <laughs>
0: man. That was like... It was like the, uh, the ur-owl, like the, the the thing that you would hold up and say, this is an owl, to aliens if they came down.
1: <laughs> I mean, imagine this. You're the guy, you know, climbing up the tree and, you know, getting it set in place. You look and it's like, that's a live owl in this tree that came all the way, uh, 170 miles on a flatbed truck into Manhattan. I wonder if I had to quarantine too. Somewhere in a hotel room, someone's bringing it, little baby mice. <laughs> You mentioned the wiring of the branches on the tree. And in fact, that's one of the reasons we're telling today's story about the Disneyland tree, because that technique is known in the industry as Frankensteining.
0: Oh, really? Yep. So it's, not, uh, it, it's been done before.
1: Well, yeah. In and, and fact, the, the gentleman we'll be talking about today, uh, Vito Serrao, he was one of the early masters of this technique. I mean, and Vito worked in Southern California. He was in air conditioning. And of course, the problem is when you work in air conditioning, as it slides into the fall and the winter, work dries up because suddenly Southern California isn't necessarily overly warm and you don't need air conditioning. So he was looking for a job to sort of cover that slack period in the air conditioning business. And his brother Tom was like, well, look, let's do a, a Christmas tree lot. I mean, it's ideal. You know, you can could, could make good money for those couple of weeks in the early winter or thereabouts. And then you can, from the money you've made from selling Christmas trees, you can relax until the air conditioning business kicks up.
0: That's actually perfect, though, if you think about it, because Christmas trees peak in the, at the very beginning of winter. The profits get you through to the spring when everyone needs their uh, their AC tuned up. That's it, exactly. Genius. Okay, all right. But here's the thing. Vito's
1: an ambitious guy. So he, he doesn't just want to sell trees to guys on the street. He's looking around for the commercial possibilities. And so he approaches banks. He approaches commercial offices who want a big, nice tree. But again, it's a, a tree that's not just a tree, but it's also a decorated tree, or it matches the color of the office, or that sort of thing. So he slides over the years into the the commercial business. And we're now talking 60s. And somehow Vito manages to get into Disneyland. And to this day, the family's kind of vague about this story because basically he got a meeting with a guy at Disney. And during this period, you can actually look at the, the Disney Christmas trees. And, and they're very 1960s, Lynn. I mean, there's a lot of...
0: Oh white christmas trees with red bulbs and i love a 1960s christmas tree i would i would own if i could find an, an actual vintage 1960s aluminum christmas tree or like the <laughs> the big the ones that they uh caricature in the charlie brown christmas episode i would buy one right now yeah
1: they darken the side of the thing and it makes it sound like a missile silo you know, it's a- <laughs> exactly like a tin can
0: or yeah. like a steel
1: drum yeah Totally would do that. All right, so. So Vito gets this meeting with a, a manager at Disneyland and, you know, shows him some shots of the bigger trees that he's done. And they're like, well, okay, yeah, all right, we, we could take a flyer on you. We need a 35-foot tall tree for this part of the park. And Vito's absolutely, I'll go to my lot and get that. And it's like, and here's the thing, he didn't actually have the tree at the time. <laughs> they do take a while to grow
0: to 35 feet. But he knew where to get them, which was Mount Shasta, I thought you were going to say Yosemite, and it involves park rangers.
1: Okay, go ahead. It's still a hike. I mean, it's Northern California. It is a nine-hour, six hundred-mile drive just to get there to get this thirty-five-foot-tall tree. He gets under (laughs) the back of a truck, but again, you know, because he's been doing this. For the commercial businesses, as he's getting the, the tree loaded on the truck, he's also collecting 50-pound branches from other white firs. By the way, that's the other reason the Disney people were very specific. They wanted a white fur. Really? Evidently, the, the manager at Disneyland was, was very into the fact that they have silvery needles and they also give off this, oh, right, yeah. this weird lemon-like smell. And so it's like, I want that type of tree for our part. And so he grabs a pile of 50-pound branches from other white firs.
0: I got to say, this is actually pretty clever of him. And this is very forward thinking, Mm -hmm. that he gets the spare branches. Mm -hmm.
1: That's something he had learned from his Christmas tree lot and doing the other larger trees for the banks, for the the, the office. Because he would literally cannibalize the smaller trees in the lot. Because the taller a tree is, the more money you get for it. Sure. But... You know, so he he drives the, again, he makes the return trip, again, another nine-hour drive, another uh, 600 miles back down to L.A., wires all the extra uh, white fur branches into place, so now he has a beautiful tree on all sides. He then covers the tree with glue, then sprays it with styrofoam beads, so this 35-footer looks like it's covered with thick
0: snow. <laughs> You know that Martha Stewart does this on her show, and we don't think any less of her, Oh, Jim.
1: I know, I know. But at the same time, you know, in some landfill, that
0: tree still exists. Still still there, still untouched.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So the folks
1: at Disneyland love what Vito did, so much so that for the next 20 years, the Serraro family and its custom Christmas tree business became the main purveyors of Christmas trees for Disneyland Park. Over time, Disney and Vito said and his routine, he'd head up to Mount Shasta in the late summer and select the perfect tree for Town Square. The thing is that when you're in Town Square, it's a 60-foot tall tree, Len. Oh, so we go from 35
0: to 60 now.
1: There are rules about Christmas trees at the Disneyland Resort. Disneyland has to have the tallest tree. California Adventure can have a tree, and it can, it can be as high as 50 feet tall, but it can't be taller than... Than Disneyland's tree. So taking that into consideration, Vito and his family would go up to Manchester, they'd select the perfect tree for Town Square. Each time that they, they would cut down a tree, which by the way, was on private land located next to Manchester Trinity National Forest. So, you know, the almost national parkland.
0: I, I don't know, Jim, that they're actually concerned about uh, real estate boundaries when they're that far up in the mountains. But eh, if you say so, okay. go ahead. But but here's the thing for every
1: tree that they would cut down, they'd then plant five little uh, white fur saplings to replace sure. it. So the idea. Well, it takes
0: a while to grow a 60 foot tree.
1: There we go. So. 60-foot-tall white fir is cut in mid-fall, typically early October, uh, before the snow starts to fly on Mount Chester, and that would really- Really? Yep. October. How do they keep the, the needles on the tree? These are professional Christmas tree people, and we're about to start frankensteining and gluing and fireproofing this tree, so it technically, once upon a time, was a live tree. Right. So anyway, they throw the tree in a, a flatbed truck, and a trucking company transports it all the way down to Anaheim. White fur arrives backstage at Disneyland sometime in mid to late October, and once the 60-footer is set up backstage, the Frankenstein process begins. We've made a point of, of hauling all these extra white fur branches, some years they used as many as 300
0: extra branches lent to give it that really full tree. I mean, it's a 60-foot tall tree. Yep. You know, Jim, this process of you know, bringing the thing in and then having people go to work on it, mm. it sounds to me like this is what happens with Mariah Carey on <laughs> Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. They bring her in a couple days ahead of time, people go to work on her, and then she's, then she's there. I know that for a fact there's at least three people who work on Spackle. <laughs> okay. All right, so so they bring the tree down mm-hmm. in October. It's sixty feet tall. Yep, mm-hmm. they gotta they gotta do the glue. They gotta, I mean, they gotta do they gotta do. Li- I mean, lights, garland, deck, uh, ornament. How long does it take? Back in
1: the seventies, decking the Disneyland Christmas tree it took a dozen staffers stringing over three thousand lights, hanging over twenty eight hundred el- ornaments. With the end goal being that you have this beautiful turn of the century Christmas tree that would then fit imperfectly with Main Seat USA's turn of the century setting, huge time-consuming activity. Typically, it would take 560 hours from the time they selected just the right tree to when the tree finally went up on display in town square, and it- fourteen weeks. Yeah, fourteen
0: weeks of labor,
1: and then it stayed in at Disneyland. It would stay in town square. Till January fifth or sixth was usually the drop dead, and then overnight, it, you know, would
0: just be taken backstage and dismantled. All right, so I have I have many questions. Okay, um, one they cut it down in mid October. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they're like somehow still feeding the thing water because you know Christmas trees will suck up water. Mm-hmm. I would like to point out that a 60 foot tall Christmas tree mm-hmm. that has been cut down two months before mm-hmm. is basically the Hindenburg. With ornaments on it. Have you ever seen a Christmas tree burn? Yeah. A Christmas tree real, that's a Christmas tree, like a normal Christmas tree that you're out will, will burn in less than a minute mm-hmm. to nothing.
1: There was a Christmas tree on display inside the Grand Californian that actually caught fire.
0: That is super dangerous. I mean, it will, it will get really, really, really hot mm-hmm. and really, really, really fast.
1: It was the holiday week and they got everybody out of the hotel safely and this wasn't a real Christmas tree. This was an artificial tree that went up. Really? Yeah. As we get up to like 2005, Disneyland's 50th anniversary, we're now entering the twilight of live Christmas trees at Disneyland. And and I mean, at least they went out in style. I mean, that year, the tree was flecked with gold. It had a record number of ornaments and lights, 5,000 lights, 5,000 ornaments. And it was even topped with a golden set of Mickey ears. But- By 2008, remember, this is Disney. This is the company that believes in environmentality. So it's just like, we should go green. So let's have an artificial Christmas tree. It's like, wait a minute.
0: You only have to buy it once. Well, Uh, but then
1: even that process got involved. Okay, this Christmas tree, the artificial Christmas tree that debuted at Disneyland in 2008, Len, it weighs 12 tons. It requires... Fifteen cast members and two cranes to erect. Wait, we talk about the Christmas tree. We back in the Mariah Carey thing. <laughs> okay, send those letters too. <laughs> Artificial tree. Okay, we're talking twelve hundred faux branches. The branches were made in Mexico, while the two hundred and eighty thousand molded fake pine tips that then line the branches; those are made in China. And then, as for the lights that cover the tree, seventy thousand LED w- white lights and some four thousand eight hundred colored lights, so that they leap out. Plus two thousand ornaments.
0: Do you remember the the ornaments that your parents had, like in the '60s, the uh, the bulbs that were about the size of your thumb and that would glow red hot, that you would put on that on that dead Christmas tree? I
1: have an unfortunate story from my my youth. <laughs> You'd go buy a house in the 1960s. In addition to the Christmas tree with those giant lights, you would yep. see the white plastic candle in the window with the orange bulb, as if there were a candle yep. in the window.
0: My mother-in-law still has them. Okay, them, yeah.
1: all right. So my parents make the mistake of putting one in my bedroom, and I'm six or seven, and you know they they've used the yellow masking tape to glue it to the window, as if well that'll protect it from the small boy. And it's like no. <laughs> So I'm supposed to be sleeping, but, you know, I've taken the candle off of the thing and I'm playing around with it as if it's a spaceship and that sort of thing. And at some point I unscrew the bulb, but I ended up with the open socket under my chin (laughs) with it still plugged in and as the electric shock went through my body. It, when you woke up. Yeah. You know, and I woke up with this perfectly little circle burn on the the bottom of my chin, which, you know, my parents noticed the next morning at breakfast, like, what is that? It's like, oh, nothing. <laughs> just, why do you have a it, speech it,
0: impediment now, young James? <laughs> yeah.
1: But, yes. And the fact that any of his children lived through the 1960s is is an amazing thing. To get back to the Serrano family. Okay, so yeah, they lost their Disneyland gig, and that was sad, but you have to understand that that tree that stood in that theme park was seen by so many Southern Californians. Vito's custom Christmas tree, which is now, by the way, called Victor's custom Christmas tree, because Vito's son Victor took over the business a few years back. Just oh. grew and grew and grew and acquired more clients. And And nowadays, that 60-foot white furland that they used to cut mm-hmm. down for digital, that's a shrub. Victor's custom Christmas tree sets up now truly giant trees around Southern California, and to be honest, all over the United States. Take, for example, the one and they just set up in Newport Beach, a 115 foot tall Christmas tree. Holy cow! It takes more than a week to first get the thing set in the ground, then to Frankenstein all those extra branches into place. Now they flame proof the tree. Ah, uh, kids these days, they don't
0: know about <laughs> you know, Christmas trees. You know, <laughs> all right, flame proofing.
1: Say, you know, you're in the market for a 115 foot tall Christmas tree. What's that going to set you back, Len? It's a thousand dollars a foot. Holy cow. But on the other hand, the one in Newport Beach, there are families that make it their tradition to go to that particular shopping mall and, you know, have their picture taken in front of the tree. And hey, they shop over they there. So, you know, I mean, they do get the money back. But again, you'd have to lay out $115,000 to get a tree of that size.
0: That's amazing. So that, so, so, the Rockefeller Center tree probably costs about that thing.
1: Oh, easily, easily. And one of the reasons that Disneyland wanted those trees is because of that lemony scent and it it makes me wonder is the one in rockefeller center is is that now owl scented and if so what do owls smell like
0: (laughs) it smells like manhattan i think jim because i I didn't notice anything when i was there oh okay hot dog water that's all right we got it so (laughs) that's a great story though jim I, i had no idea about the the disneyland christmas tree uh history was that fascinating vito has retired to Arizona, but we got to talk to this guy at some point because there's
1: got to be some great stories about the early Christmases at Disneyland.
0: Next time I go out to see Hannah in uh, in Tempe, let me, uh, I'll let you know. Maybe we can uh, get an interview with him. Ooh, that'd be cool. Great story, Jim. Great story.
1: Okay.
0: All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in-park audio and a special series on Epcot storytelling. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len at On next week's show, Jim tells us about the Country Bear Christmas. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be singing Greg Raleigh's parts in the songs Feeling That Way and Anytime live on stage with Journey at the Out Coliseum on the world-famous Las Vegas Strip in Caesar's Palace on New Year's Eve, December 31st in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.